Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, we're discussing what 2022 looks like in terms of science and research policy issues. With me to discuss that is Professor Sarah Main, Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering, or CASE. Professor Sarah Main, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gavin. It's a pleasure to be here. So from your perspective, what are some of the major issues in science and research policy that, that you can see emerging in the year ahead and that CASE will therefore be monitoring? There's a lot going on, isn't there? I think there's some big picture political things and there are some things that are about the structure of the research system. So starting with the politics, obviously, at the moment, there is a lot of attention on the leadership of the government and what's happening at number 10. I think that how that evolves is relevant for science in the year ahead, simply because the focus, the political focus on science as an asset to the UK has come strongly from number 10 for a number of years. And so if we see a change of leadership at the top of government, that could have an impact on the general sort of political mood um, and rhetoric about science and, and about, you know, this catchphrase of the UK becoming a science superpower that we've heard in recent years. So that's one to watch. And I think it's interesting to reflect how much science and, and science policy has migrated more and more towards number 10 over recent years. Then just thinking about the structures and, and system of research and innovation funding, there's a lot going on as, as you and I'm sure your listeners uh, are aware. So firstly, we have huge uplift in public investment in R&D that's been announced at, at the spending review and will be ongoing for the next few years. And that is with that overall goal in mind of really kind of raising the proportion of the UK economy uh, derived from research and innovation activity. So the big question there with, with such a huge monetary uplift is what do we do with it? You know, how do you deploy that uplift? What outcomes do you want to see from that for the science economy, for UK society, for the government's national goals and, and for our economic growth overall? So uh, big questions there as to how that money is used. And alongside that rising envelope of investment are lots of structural reviews going on. So looking at the landscape of research institutions and the way that some of our big funders operate uh, and so on. So it seems like a time of some review and possible change in the system at a time when the resources going into the system are growing and the kind of responsibility of science and engineering to the public is also growing as well, in my view. Then finally, of course, you know, we've all been through you know, huge scientific and cultural transformations as a result of the pandemic. And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, which of those changes will embed and last in the research and innovation system and in society. Well, a lot of issues in there, a lot of things to be keeping an eye on. In terms of the big picture politics and government and number 10, uh, you said earlier it's one to watch. I'm not sure that any of us really knows exactly how that will play out. But what are the concerns from the, the research an engineering community about some of the potential changes that, that might come if there is a change of leadership in number 10? I'm not sure I'd express them as concerns, really, but I think some of the possible 
implications of a change of leadership would be, okay, so firstly, we've got to think about the commitment of the money. Now, there is a substantial um, uplift to 22 billion by 2024 that's been committed at the spending review. Given that that has already been written into Treasury plans, I think it's unlikely that that would change. So hopefully that specific goal would, would be maintained. I think it's more to do with the strength and posi- positioning of the scientific rhetoric and where it comes from within government that's interesting. And I was thinking back to the coalition government and Cameron and, and Osborne as the prime minister and the chancellor. And at that time, there was broadly positive rhetoric about science, but most of the scientific commentary came from George Osborne. And then later, I think with Theresa May, we began to see some really specific goals for uplift in R&D investments starting in about 2016. And that was tied to the industrial strategy. So so that sort of shifted a little bit the focus into into number 10. And then, of course, with Boris Johnson and and his aide, Dominic Cummings, there was really a, a, a huge boost in the level of political rhetoric coming from number 10 on science. What will the next prime minister's view be? I don't know. I mean, it you know, the science superpower language is one that belongs to Boris Johnson, really. So it seems unlikely that a successor would retain the same language or the same, you know, presentation of their science ambitions. But I think, in my view, the UK's science and innovation capability is a huge asset. And I think that any government, the leader, leadership of any government would want to use that to help deliver on their domestic and international agenda. So I I hope that it would still remain a priority. It just may not come from the same place of power. It it may sit more with other ministers or other parts of government, but that I think would be remain to be seen. Interesting. And it is one where we just have to see how things play out. That, if you like, is the politics. The, The second thing that you talked about in your opening remarks was money and obviously the big uplift and the big question as to, okay, so what do we do with it? Uh, and there are some certain questions, I guess, as to what we might do with certain parts of it. One of them is around Horizon Europe and whether or not the UK associates with that. How do you see that playing out over the next few months? What are the different possibilities uh, that might occur? This is a, a significant resource question for the science community, but it's it's really a sort of talisman, I think, more of strength of UK relationships with its international partners and, and the way the science and research community largely feels about having positive collaborations internationally. And it's one that's, that's really wrapped up with, with politics again. As, as I'm sure your listeners will remember, the association with European research programmes was agreed in principle as part of the Christmas Eve deal on Brexit over a year ago. And so we are told by um, our friends in government that the agreements on association are complete. They they are ready to be signed. So all of the wrinkles and negotiations uh, have been ironed out and done. Uh, And we're told that it's, it's held up now because of wider issues in the negotiations between the UK and the EU. And so, you know, our association into these programmes, which is welcomed, I think, on both sides of the channel, is in a state of stasis, if you like, waiting for other things to resolve. Therefore, you know, it seems very difficult for the 
science community, the people working in science policy to have a material impact on how that unfolds over the next few months as you know, as, as so much of it is one already decided on the scientific front and two really held up by other matters. But I'm sure there's a great deal of diplomacy going on on both sides. So I, I think there are a few different outcomes. One is that the negotiation resolves in such a way that we do associate. One is that the association agreement is made possible by both sides, but for some reason the, the UK decides it's no longer attractive and doesn't sign. And the third is that I think the negotiations are such that both sides cannot agree on anything and, and they collapse. And you'll know that the, the government and, and the UK science minister have been actively thinking about how they develop an international science programme for the UK, hopefully with a European association, but also developing alternatives for UK international partnerships uh, with the whole of the world. I think this must be, you know, an incredibly difficult time for researchers, people who have applications going in and are waiting on agreements on collaborations and, and funding and must be an extremely uncertain time and coming on the back of several years of uncertainty already. So I think that's really interesting. And there's almost not much you can say. As you said, there are several possible outcomes and they are somewhat outside at the moment of the science community to deal with. And we have to see how some of those negotiations play out. Let me turn to domestic science matters and spending and some of the things that might be spent with some of this uplift that uh, you were describing following the spending review. Only in the last week or so, we've had a government white paper on levelling up. And again, there are some potential science and research and engineering contributions into that levelling up, and that may change things. Levelling up, I think, is, is, is really interesting. And I, for one, am pleased that the government clearly see R&D uh, and the UK's scientific capability as an asset they can use to help deliver on their national agenda and to help deliver prosperity for people um, in, a, in a very broad sense across the whole UK. So I think one, it, it's striking that in a, a prominent sort of flagship white paper from the government coming from a department which is primarily concerned with cities, towns, housing, people's well-being and prosperity, that an R&D target is you know, the second bullet point out of five. You know, it is right at the top of the agenda. I think that speaks again to the politics and, and how interesting it is that, you know, perhaps as a result of the pandemic or perhaps because of a renewed focus on, on the UK making its own way in the world, you know, outside of Europe and really examining what we're good at, um, that you can see a, an attention being given across the whole of government to how R&D can be deployed to achieve wider national goals. The R&D ambitions in the levelling up white paper are, are boldly stated. Uh, you see some, some goals in there, about 40% of public R&D being spent outside of what they call the Greater Southeast, which I think means London and the Southeast, really. Calculations that we've done at CASE indicate that in this time of a rising envelope for investment in R&D, that overall goal doesn't actually represent shifting the balance of R&D investment outside of London and the Southeast 
uh, in any way that distorts the current distribution as it is today. What it represents as far as we can understand it is actually that in this growing, this time of a growing uh, investment in R&D, that the proportions of today will remain effectively the same and that the distribution of R&D across the UK, once, you know, once that leveling up agenda has been achieved, will remain largely as they are today. So I don't think it is right to interpret it as a suction of R&D investment out of London and South East. It doesn't imply to me that, that that will diminish. It implies to me that actually effort has to be made to ensure that there is a distribution that is at least um, the same as it is now in this five to 10 years of rising investment of R&D that goes to the rest of the country. And for some, they may feel that's not ambitious enough, but I think even meeting that target will require effort and planning and infrastructure to ensure that that R&D money can be invested effectively across the whole of the UK. And I think that there are really interesting challenges there. One linking back to our previous conversation around Europe is thinking about structural support for research and innovation investment. So when we were part of the European Union, the structural funds of the European Union, the European Research and Development Fund, were used across the UK to help support the emergence of um, hubs of excellence in research and innovation. So in Wales, for example, they had a sort of disproportionately high amount of structural funding from Europe and to support innovation per head than in other parts of the country. Northern Ireland also benefited significantly. And now we won't have those European structural funds. There is the shared prosperity fund from the UK and some sort of pilot programs like the Strength in Places Fund. And I think I would like to see the government really thinking about how it can deploy those structural funds to make sure that new R&D investment is, is used to grow centres of excellence and really kind of help develop nascent areas of, of innovation and research excellence around the country. Really interesting. In your opening remarks, you also talked about a number of reviews that are going on about the structure of R&D at the moment. And I know at least three that are due to report in 2022, which are chaired respectively by Adam Tickell, David Grant and Paul Nurse. Can you give us briefly just a little bit of background as to these reviews and what some of the key issues that they're discussing? You know, sometimes it's actually a little difficult to fully understand the background to, to reviews. It's not always clear where they come from and why. But however, when we see a number of reviews being commissioned, one interpretation you can make of that is that either people feel that time has passed and, it, and it's right for things to be reviewed, or, or people in government feel that perhaps, you know, there is some cause to examine the case for change. And I think what I take from these three reviews going on at the moment is that, is that there's some appetite in government to think about change in the research and innovation funding system and, and structural landscape. And of course, with, with this big ambitious uplift in R&D investment, there, you know, there is sense in that to think about how this investment can be deployed structurally, you know, what the, the funding structures are for its use. So each of the reviews addresses slightly different things. Paul Nurse's review is looking at the organisational landscape in research and innovation. David Grant's review is focusing more on UKRI itself. And Adam Tickell's review was looking at bureaucracy in the system, which I think, 
is a really interesting opportunity to look at ways of funding more 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 diverse people and organizations and uh, you know creating a system that's uh, fit for the future you know i think it's fair to say that all three weren't commissioned together as a group they were commissioned separately yet they will kind of report at a similar time i hope that what that that review can achieve is that that both the science system the scientists and researchers on the ground the funders and government can really think carefully about how to make the most of this uplift and how to deliver a more research and innovation intensive UK that really benefits people in, a, in, a, in as wide a, a sense as possible. You know, I know we hear that very strongly from the leadership of UKRI, from Ottilene Lyser, who thinks talks about an inclusive knowledge economy. Uh, I personally think it's, it's right and, and, and really important that the UK's science capability should deliver for people across the UK and people should be able to participate in it and benefit from it. It's very hard to disagree with that last statement. Um, I completely endorse what you've just said. I just wanted to ask you towards the end of, of the time that the last thing you mentioned in your opening remarks was COVID. And of course, we all hope that in 2022, we will see an easing of the COVID pandemic. How has COVID changed the science and research environment? And I guess, which of these changes are likely to stay beyond the end of the pandemic itself? Be interesting to see, won't it? I think there have obviously been deep changes in culture and practice of our economy that, that have applied to all sectors of the economy and businesses and not just to science and innovation. So, you know, practices in terms of hybrid working, of, of you know, doing our, our podcast across a Zoom call rather than, you know, in a, in a studio together, for example. And, and I'm sure those have had a, a deep impact and my sense, you know, my guess is that they will continue to, to have an impact on, on the way that people do their jobs and, and they, they blend their home lives and their work lives. I think it'd be really interesting. But then you think about the science and engineering sector itself. And we at CASE reflected during the pandemic on some of the particular disturbances that were happening to R&D-led businesses as a result of the pandemic. So you might remember that for the aerospace industry, their business, you know, their customer demand, you know, collapsed overnight. And that had an impact on R&D budgets and R&D spending, which we were told by some of those businesses at the time would take years to recover. So there are some big players in the R&D sector on the business side who have had a significant knock to their R&D capability. And I think that's likely to have an impact across academia and the public sector, because some of those big anchor organizations had an awful lot of interfaces with other parts of the sector through skills or you know, job opportunities or public-private partnerships and so on, thinking about delivering R&D innovations for society that may take time to come back on stream. So there are some of those sort of big economic knocks. Another area which I think you know, had, a, had a really huge knock to its R&D activity was the medical research charity where their income streams disappeared overnight in terms of shops, uh, retail, retail outlets for charities and events such as you know, running the marathon and so on. And we know that many of our medical research charities have had to 
really substantially alter their R&D activities in order to cope with that. And that will take years to rebuild. So I think there are some of those fluctuations in the system and the interfaces between those parts of it and other parts of it that, that will take time to restabilize. And then there's just a question of all of the you know, huge number of innovations that came on stream, you know, the different engineering solutions, different sort of testing and sort of life science capability that all was, was ramped up to a huge extent early on in the, in the pandemic. And I wonder what will happen to that R&D capability and infrastructure now. So, you know, will the UK seek to retain testing facilities? Will it seek to retain vaccine production or seek to retain that sort of engineering innovation that was so quickly pivoted to finding solutions? I, of course, I, you know, I don't know how that will pan out, but I would, I, I really hope that some of that agile, nimble capability and, and energy um, is retained. We will just have to see. Well, we've come to the end of our time. That's all we have time for today. But Professor Sarah Main, thank you very much. That's been my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Sarah Main, Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. You can find details of all the activities of the Foundation on our website at www.foundation.org.uk including all of our events, all of our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing artificial intelligence, and my guest will be Dr. Kate Devlin from King's College London. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>